Hello and welcome to the Creative Adventurer's Survival Guide with me, Mark Patterson. This is the podcast that celebrates the arts in all its forms and fuels artistic conversation and collaboration. If you own a creative business or you're a practitioner who has been affected by the uncertain and chaotic forces in the world, then it's our aim to arm you with ideas and inspiration, to battle self-doubt, and to make that road ahead seem calmer, clearer, and a hell of a lot more fun. If you'd like to join our adventure and keep up to date with all the latest episodes, then you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, we're at Creative Adventures Podcast, and you can even download a very bright and cheerful Creative Adventures desktop wallpaper to keep you inspired. So let's continue the adventure. So when it comes to turning a passion into a creative vision, then I guess Neil Cole has probably achieved what for most of us would remain a pipe dream. Neil has taken his love and enthusiasm and made it a reality in the guise of the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi, a permanent exhibition that has materialised in Allendale, a very unassuming village in the heart of rural Northumberland in northeast England. The museum showcases a substantial collection of original props, costumes, artwork, even visual effects that many of us would recognise from the realms of science fiction on the big and small screen. From Star Trek to the Marvel Universe, Planet of the Apes and even leaping forward to Buck Rogers in the 25th century, the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi showcases the lot. Neil has even gone so far as to rescue and restore some very rare items which might otherwise have been completely destroyed beyond their on-screen use, and are now used to showcase a cultural heritage of genre stories and our ongoing fascination with all things above and beyond. But being an arts teacher turned great curator certainly isn't as easy as it might sound. It certainly posed a unique set of challenges for Neil, from Daleks battling local councils to keeping an artistic venue alive through a series of national lockdowns. So in this episode, Neil shares the power of creativity in his life and the importance of following through with a creative vision, even when that vision might seem alien to others. So Neil, thank you very much for dropping by the survival guide. I'm going to cast my mind back to when the museum first opened. I was there on the opening day when the the, the ribbon got cut. And uh, I have this, this memory that sticks in my head of Cybermen and Stormtroopers waltzing mm-hmm. down Allendale and... Uh, yeah, there was this little car that went that went by, and there was an elderly lady in it, and she was looking in her side mirrors, and she <laughs> she was smiling, but I don't think she realised why she was smiling. It was slightly yeah. unnerving the way she looked. Yeah, just casting your mind back to that particular day when a museum for classic science fiction opens mm. in the heart of Allendale, rural Northumberland. Yeah. How how did you 
how did that happen? How did it all come together? And um, yeah, what was that like? It's a, it's a really, it's a long story in many ways because it, it was the it was the coming together of lots of things in my life which had um, conspired finally when I was in my forties to get it together. Um, I mean, I'd, I was brought up in in uh, Tyndale and I never left Tyndale. Um, and a lot of it was financial um, lack of finance and lots of opportunities. I think looking back, I, I maybe would have had had I come from a family with a bit more, you know, uh, income and, and influence and 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 knowledge really. Because as a you know, I am a creative. I, I would argue, you know, I'm a very very creative person. I've played music in my life. I've drawn, sculpt, whatever. Um, but growing up. In the family I did, and this is no disrespect to them at all, I don't think they really understood me, particularly. My dad wanted me to become a pharmacological engineer, you know, which was not ever, you know, I remember going to a, a, a pharmacolo pharmacological factory once and just thinking, my God, this is everything I don't want. And so I ended up staying in the Tyne Valley, which is not, the best place probably for a you know a, a sort of highly creative progressive rock fan meets science fiction fan and I but despite all that all those passions I had an interest in science fiction particularly and then sort of rock and progressive rock music which is what I loved for, for many years they never went away and I just did them anyway the fact that nobody cared didn't really bother me it was just I'd still draw comics or I'd still sculpt monsters or whatever it was and then slowly as time came on and I started to learn to teach and, and I became a teacher. Um, I then started collecting props. Now you put all this together eventually, coupled with the fact that as a young child, I went to the Doctor Who Museum in 1975 in Blackpool, the Doctor Who exhibition as it was then. Um, it was something I'd always, always wanted to um, create. And, and in my naivety, I thought, yes, and one day I will. But as, as I hit sort of in my twenties, I realized once I realized that the way the world was there was no chance I was ever going to make a museum you know I was in the you know the wrong place everything was you know but for some reason I, I persisted um, and then when I married my wife Lisa and um, just just suddenly I've been collecting props and very much with the intention of restoring them and making them last you know because I could I hated the thought of these things dropping to bits these sort of I call them culture you know sort of shared cultural heritage which I, I honestly look at these items as really important they're important to my childhood and probably yourself and these are in, these are objects we've all seen and I value them as much as you know art you know modern you know classic art or whatever to me it, it's important stuff so and then we just somehow my wife and I we, we, we thought of opening a science fiction cafe because I, I taught for 20 years and I was just getting to that point where I just needed to have a go at, um, it was all, you know, obviously enjoyed teaching, but at the same time, I had to bring the money in, had to pay the bills. So there was no spare chance for me to ever try and do anything. And I was, I'm bubbling with ideas, you know, and it was starting to get me down, if I'm honest. It was starting to just get me down. I thought, well, I'm never going to achieve. It was, and then I, and then you feel kind of guilty. It's a bit selfish and a bit guilty. Don't be silly, you know, you, you know, you you, you know what you're doing, you're teaching and everything. And then you think, well, is that selfish to want to put my own ideas out there? Um, 
And slowly, my wife sort of helped me think, no, that's not a selfish idea. It's okay, because you're a competent artist and nobody knows anything you've done or particularly. And so slowly, I started to change my mindset. And then we had this idea of the cafe. And then we looked at a house which we could perhaps buy. We had to look at very decrepit old houses because we didn't have that much money. And eventually we found the house in Allendale. And my father-in-law, who's been amazing, who you've probably met and probably seen on the, the Netflix program we're on, um, he's been amazing because he doesn't like science fiction at all. Doesn't get it. Just doesn't get it. But he's enjoyed, I think, not that he'd admit to it ever, but I think he's enjoyed this journey. It's been He, he, he used to run a coffee shop. Um, and he was, he's lectured in business and stuff. So he's quite, you know, learned in terms of how the world works in terms of just business and, and you know, and, and running a small business as well as, you know, teaching people about it. And he very much gave us the advice um, not to run a cafe because I was going to open Blue Box Cafe and I was going to have a TARDIS outside and you'd come <laughs> in and the props would be there. But, you know, ultimately, uh, again, my best mate up here, he'd run a coffee shop for years and, it's it's it you know ultimately i need the height what i really wanted was an art space where i could produce artwork that i'd had in me all my life and also a museum you know um so that was the uh that was where it came together so basically in terms of what the opening day was like it was that's actually one of the nicest days of my life i think it was one of the most satisfying days of my life i can honestly say um because I, I, you know, I'd, I'd done gigs as I in rock bands and done all sorts of things, but it was it was like a vision I'd had, and I managed to see it through from start to finish, what's and all. And then John Levine from Doctor Who turned up, so to have suddenly, and I'd never been to conventions, I hadn't met lots of actors and actresses from the show that I loved so much, but to have him walking down the road with stormtroopers, um, and just seeing people happy. And enjoying themselves in the museum mm. was just amazing. That was what was lovely. It was the fact there was a buzz that day. Um, and the village just really enjoyed it. You know, there was like stormtroopers went in the co-op, which I sent them. I said, you've got to go to the co-op and go shopping in the co-op. Because <laughs> I just thought, you know, that little boy, when I was that age, you know, when I was seven, when I saw Star Wars when I was seven, if, if stormtroopers walked into the co-op, I used to go shopping with my dad on a Saturday morning. If that had happened to me, I would have been blown away. And I just thought yeah, the village itself, yeah. I think it, there was, I, I mean, you were there. I just felt there was a buzz that day. Um, and it was just a lovely, lovely atmosphere. Yeah, I think it was just that sense of, I can't quite believe that this is happening on the doorstep, but then <laughs> why not? Yeah. And it happened and 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 in, sh in short, Mark, the answer was it was a weird the way my life had twisted and turned ended it made the museum happen here it wasn't one thing it wasn't like i said i must go to allendale and make a museum it wasn't any of the, you know it was just the fact i got you know sort of loved the area growing up stayed in the area not always out not always out of choice but that's how it ended up meeting my wife ending up with this house it was just a lot of different things came together if that makes sense yeah i mean you you mentioned going to the museum in Blackpool and that being yeah. a source of inspiration for you. But I have yeah. in front of me um, Doctor Who, the making of a television series, which you might Great be book. familiar with. Great and book. 
for me that that was probably the start of my creative journey it was wasn't yeah. so much the the stories that i was watching as a child growing up in the 80s but oh. then i was fascinated about how these programs were put together and probably oh. set me on my path a creative path to working in tv and radio production myself yeah and i felt i felt when i went into the museum um there was a particular monster the pterodactyl which is highlighted in this particular book and yes. there was a sense of knowing who i was because i was surrounded by these very familiar pieces that yeah. inspired me as a child and there they yeah. were in front of me and it was dare i say it's a bit of a, a spiritual um yeah. connection i totally get that and that is very much i mean it's lovely to hear you say that and it, the fact you've said that even if nobody else ever said anything similar at all you've it's been it's been worth doing do you know what i mean because it's that that is an art well you know depending what you mean by art but an artistic you know what art should do what really good art should do i'm not saying you know, it should i think it, it makes you feel that you know it makes you feel things it makes you experience things and look at things and i think if i've obviously with a museum like this it's about it is nostalgic um it's a time machine really in its own way and each exhibit has that potential to take somebody back with me the pterodactyl was really important because i remember my mom who died many years ago now but i remember an, on transmission of that story we took the dog out down the river and i remember that walk because it was a bit like the, the location of the story and i remember thinking oh, i wonder if it's a pterodactyl you know um <laughs> And I have a very fond memory of that. So whenever I pass that monster, and then the chance to restore it was quite magical. I mean, that and that was like a test of all my skills, really, as um, in terms of sculpting, because it was a very, very badly um, neglected, super, terribly, probably the worst in the in the collection. But um, I'm very happy. And incidentally, I met Mike Tucker um, last week. Um, you may have seen. I've been lent, he, he contacted me, said I. You want to borrow Broton, the Zygon from 1975. Yeah, yeah. But he complimented the Terraleptal I'd done, which I was like, oh my God, because I thought you'd point out what I've done wrong. Because I use methods I've made up myself. He does things, he restores things totally different. And I went down, I always apologized. I'm sorry, Mike, I haven't done them the way you do. And he went, no, Neil, how did you do that? How did you? And it was like he was genuinely interested in what I was doing. And I thought, my God, Mike, Mike Tucker. I said to him, I said, Mike, you want my heroes? Because the books I've in one of my favorite books, I don't know if you've got it, is Sophie Aldred's Ace book and Mike Tucker's Ace book. Yes, yeah. And it's a yeah. great book. You know, I've got, I still flick through that periodically. And um, it was just lovely. But you're right, it, it's um, it's about the familiar. I go down there and I, I relive a feeling. My dad, my parents, I'm an only child. So my parents died many years ago, many, many years ago. My dad, when I was in my 20s, and um, he got me into sci fi. Um, comics and all this sort of stuff and so when I go down there it's it's it just resonates with a lovely time you know Saturday tea times you know winter evenings drawing in all those sort of feelings um, and so it's a you know and it's quite powerful it's quite evocative I find you know it actually leads me on to talk about something we've discussed in previous episodes about when it comes to creativity and you're in that moment, there's a, 
I guess, a sense of communion between you and that piece that you're working with, that piece you're trying to create, that idea you're trying to develop. Do you get that sense when you're working on a particular piece and having that moment to restore it? Is is there that connection between you and that item? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, I think, I think um, the interest probably with myself is I class myself as an artist. I mean, I've um, sold artwork over the years, um, which are not science fiction at all. They're, they're, I would always say they're kind of like, um, uh, I wouldn't say surrealism exactly, but they're sort of um, subconscious drawing, if you like, um, very detailed and, and sort of like um, almost, you know, just seeing what comes out and allowing it to flow. Very detailed drawings. And that, that was always a very deep connection, sort of like um, with a piece of art, you know. The, and so and obviously I've written music as well. So I've, I've experienced that, those sort of very, trans, you know, transformative almost, you know, sort of um, transcendent almost experiences with a, when you're engaging in art at a deep level, which mm. I love. I mean, they're the bits I... I think you're always aiming for is that it's better than the end product. It's that the, the actual, for me, it's the actual, the doing, um, when you're actually involved it's so deeply with a piece of work, it's fantastic when that's happening. Um, and it's, it's certainly the museum I look at has been one large piece of artwork. It's almost like the biggest piece of art, but is the biggest art project I've ever done because it's creating an environment. And then within that, you, you, you are, having to take care of other other artworks, other artifacts, um, and trying to do them justice. But the Pteroleptal is a great example because, as I say, I've got such a strong attachment to it uh, in both sort of a fictional sense and then in terms of a history of something, I have, an artwork, an art form I either program that I've loved so much. When I was doing it at times, um, yeah, you, you, you were sort of thinking about the designers, you were thinking about the... The work they've done, and it, it, it and also it, it got the emotional level. As I say, the walk with my mum. Gosh, I'm working on the monster that I looked at on that lovely evening where we watched Doctor Who together. It's very strange, um, you know. And it's not you're not doing an original piece of work, which I love to do. I love to create original things, but it's been very satisfying in a very different way. But yeah, absolutely, becoming involved with the object. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they, they take their, they, all, they become an obsession while you work for me. I, f- I want to find out everything about the object and watch them in the program and find out about the people who made them. And um, on occasion, I've been able to actually contact the people who made them, which has been quite amazing. I mean, when you first, when you first started collecting these items, uh, are there any particular memories that resonate with you when certain things came into your possession? And how did they come into your possession? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple. Of, I mean, I remember in 1990, right, I was a student then, and I'd, I'd, um, I'd just left art college. Again, I, I had no direction. Not direction. I had loads of ideas, but no one really guiding me at that point in my life. And I look back to, I've talked to the Doctor Who artist, Andrew Scaletta, about this. Um and Andrew Scaletta, for those of you listening who don't know who he is, he was very—he is a very famous Doctor Who, very famous for his Doctor Who covers. And he did about, I don't know, 40, 50 Doctor Who boot jacket artworks and, and things like Ruth Rendell and all sorts of wonderful artists. And been lucky enough to, to speak to him. Um, and we, he, his dad, I saw his ability as, an, as a draftsman, as an artist, an illustrator, 
introduced him to a very famous illustrator who lived nearby and then got him they, they sort of helped him get into illustration college and university do all these things so he sort of like had that guidance whereas i never had that guidance um so it was then i remember being sort of unemployed for about a year and the doctor who auction came at bonhams in 1990 it was on blue peter i remember and i just remember looking at it and thinking i would so love a little piece of doctor who original something that touching it's that blending of the fictional world with reality you know to actually beyond the collectible thing or the, the, you know and um i thought there's no way i'm ever going to afford it because i literally i had no money at all zip absolutely zip it. so i just thought that's the end that's it that's the collection gone so it was years later probably a decade later when i by then i tipped taught i had no idea how these things work but of course people buy things like this they don't know what to do with them and then sell them on again now um so some of these items from those original auctions and there'd been more than i'd realized there'd been a few auctions over the years they started to trickle back onto the secondary market uh, through places like the Doctor Who shop and places like this. And I remember the very first item I ever saw was an original Doctor Who prop. I was teaching. I finished teaching. I was sitting at the end of the day, and I just, this note came up, and I saw this item for sale. It was a, a resurrect, um, Revelation of the Daleks guard helmet. And I just could not believe it was real. It was a real object. And um, I remember it was affordable. I could actually afford it. It wasn't massively expensive. And I, the thrill of getting that, I can still see myself. I was in my classroom just about to go home and that was just like wow and I put the set you know that the, the press by you know and it it had gone through I was just like whoa and then there's things <laughs> like um Ohika's gown came up next and Ohika's gown was from the Brainy Morbius which again if you don't know for those listening who don't know this was from a very very highly regarded story from 1976 from Tom Baker's era and um this was like one of the principal characters just gown you know it's just nothing really but it was the fact it was her, you know, production-made gown. And I sold yeah. my motorbike there and then to get it. I was traveling to school on a motorbike, and I needed to raise the cash for it. And I thought, I really, really would love to have that item. And I ended up using public transport for a while after that. Um, but I don't <laughs> regret it. So the, that gown is now in the museum, and um, I have no regrets at all. And that motorbike's probably bit, bit in the dust many years ago now. I mean, going from those one mm. and two items to, mm. I would say, a, a very modest collection that you have now, mm. um, is there a sense of responsibility that then comes along at that point? Because it's one thing being something that is personally evocative to you, but then you, you're surrounded by all these original pieces, yeah. which mean qu quite a lot to a wider community of people who appreciate that kind of thing. It, it was there a point where it, it sort of, the, the, there was a mindset shift in terms of how you, you sit, you saw these items. Yeah, I think so. Excuse me. I think like a lot of, a lot of collectors and fans of, of anything you, you start collecting and you I had like a little collection space and it grew as you say it grew and when it took a while for that to happen and um, because again I was a, a new teacher I didn't start teaching till I was in my late 20s so it, I didn't have a fantastic salary but what I was very good at if I guess is um, I've never had a ter tremendously opulent lifestyle so 
I'm not into cars particularly, so I'm quite happy to have a very basic model car. Uh, I rode a motorbike for years, and um, I've never been particularly worried about traveling the world. So I was quite happy to um, purchase, you know, things and very gradually paying things in monthly installments. So gradually this collection grew. There was certainly a change in mind shift when I started thinking about opening a museum. Um, because I'd been going weekly, basically every month I used to travel down in the 2000s to the Blackpool Museum, which was run by David Boyle. And that blew my mind. I'd seen it at Langothlan before that. It was, first of all, it was basically the remaining stock of BBC costumes. And it was incredible. And by that point, I think I had a few bits and pieces when I went to Langothlan. I had a plasmaton by then. Um, and when I got... And it, it started to occur to me the condition that these things were in. And I'm, I'm the guy looking through the glass at things that, that resonate with me so deeply. I have such tremendous affection for. And I'm seeing them dropping to pieces. And then from Langothlan in North Wales, they get moved to Blackpool. And again, you could sense that the BBC... Um, we're not looking after this collection. You could see limbs on creatures, costumes decaying. You could see, and I almost, I sort of documented them dropping the bits. I even remember going in one day and saying, look, can I help you fix these up? Um, and I just knew that, I just felt really desperate to get my hands on them. I thought, because these need saving. Um, I don't think the museum plan of my own had thoroughly formed at that point because it was just seemed it would have seemed too impossible so this would probably be about you know sort of 2010 2011 something like that um but when they came up for sale anyway i bought a few that i could afford if you couldn't i mean put it this way i knew a guy who spent thirty thousand pounds in that in that big bottom sort yeah i had i'd saved together three and i did what i could i ended up buying a prop of him a year later when he had no idea what to do with them these these items, these wonderful historic pieces. Unfortunately, I couldn't buy the rest of the stuff because I just don't have that sort of money. But again, I think over time, I think through my sheer perseverance, I think I ended up, I have ended up with this collection. And the difference now is I'm not the guy looking in the glass. I'm the guy behind the glass and I can look after them and I will look after them because they are important. And I do feel that sense of responsibility now. In fact, it's an interesting question you've raised because for the first time ever, I, I mean, I hit 50 last year and I suddenly started thinking, oh, the, the museum collection's safe with me and I, you know, I'll look after it till I die. And then I thought, oh my God, what happens when I die? What's going to happen to this stuff? <laughs> you know, I actually did. I thought, yeah. you know, it's safe. You know, I promise, I promise the Doctor Who sci-fi community, as long as I draw breath, you can come here and look at it and see it and experience it that's my thing i wanted to do and it will always be open and it will always be on display so you can come and have look as i did for years going to blackpool and all these things and knowing the pleasure people get from that and i will look after the stuff i, I run dehumidifiers down i repair stuff i seal them and do all sorts of stuff um but i am now worrying i, mean, I am literally now probably every day i think what the hell is going to happen to this stuff when I'm not around to look after it, because it does take a bit of looking after, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, but hopefully, I mean, I'll have, I'll have secured them, sealed them, conservation. You know, that's what I'm doing is conserving things. Um, and I just hope, as we you know, I'm hopefully I've got a few decades of me left. I'm, I'm praying, um, and uh, you know, but it is a funny. Yeah, I do feel a sense of responsibility, and I actually honestly think the BBC should never ever have sold this stuff off. 
all of their stuff, because it was all paid through license fee, <coughs> excuse me, I think it should have all been in a central exhibition, you know, along with all the other famous shows that we grew up loving. And, you know. Mm. I seem to remember there was one um, story about a particular item that you've discovered dropping to bits in a porter cabin. Yeah, that was the gone. Um, a guy had purchased five monsters from the auction I, I went to. Um, and these were beautiful pieces, including the ancient one from um, uh, Curse of Fenric, which was in a bad condition uh, at Bonhams in London. But unfortunately, by the time, I don't think it was, I'm not trying to say this guy was being reckless, anything like that. But ultimately, he didn't have space for these things. They're big pieces, and they really do require hours, days, weeks, months of your life to, to repair them. And he just bought them. I mean, it must be like, you know, if you're a, a, a fan who goes in there and you've got no idea about how these costumes are put together, but you just love them and you've got that sort of money, then, you know, I guess, you know, that's what you're going to do. But ultimately, they ended up in a porter cabin. Um, the day I went there, the sun was shining through the windows. And, you know, porter cabins are like, the, the heat temperature is terrible for the materials. You don't want extremes of heat and cold. And the garm, which I actually wanted... A, a year before when I was in London, but just running out of money. Um, he was standing there, bless him. And I could see, I'd, I'd watched, I remember first seeing him with two arms, then eventually his one arm had gone off. And then sadly, in that year, in just a year, the other arm had fallen off. And I literally swept up most of the arm um, to try and put it back together. I've got the hand, I've still got the hand. I've actually exhibited the hand separately in the museum and I've sealed it in resins. It's incredibly fragile. They're unique, absolutely unique. Something like the Garn, I love them, I hate it. This is a unique artifact of, um, you know, of a very, very popular science fiction program. It doesn't matter if it's sci-fi or whatever it is, it's a very popular, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's an interesting item and there's only one made. So to allow it just to fall to pieces to me seems criminal <laughs> i mean you, you touched on there the um the hard work and the dedication that goes into maintaining and restoring these pieces that come into your possession yeah i guess do you have to tread a fine line of keeping a sense of joy about what you do and not suddenly become all-consuming and feel like hard work yeah, it is hard. That's a good point. That's a really good point because I am basically, I've, I've turned my life from full-time teaching with hobby drawing, if you like, or a bit of hobby sculpting, even though I'm you know, probably at a high level. I've transferred that now to actually, I'm trying to turn it around so that that becomes the main focus of my life. And in doing that, certainly I felt some pressure in, um, uh, making sure that for me it, it's vitally important because again I, I think because i came from such a, a low income background um it's very important that when people turn up here i they, there's genuinely something for them to see that's decent and that's worthwhile and satisfying and i have to charge an entrance fee because when i'm sat in the museum i'm not teaching so i'm not earning a living that way so it's a, it's and i've struggled with that because if it was up to me i would have it would be free it would all be free you know just you know um, but you know, obviously that's not the way that I can't do that, but it has meant that I've felt the pressure to make 
the museum really good. I have, I, as a creative person, I guess I have very high standards and expectations of myself. And I've also seen how other museums and other displays have, have not, for me, done it right. And I've had this very strong idea of doing, of really curating these items thoroughly. So I want a, a plaque, which you've probably seen Mark when you've been in, but I want a plaque which really accurately describes the item. Um, mm. And then, and then, you know, any restoration work, you know, it's not just like it's, it is, I'm trying to be as accurate to the original as possible. Um, and it's more just time. Time's the enemy of, I think any, any, well, most, you know, time for me is more precious than money most of the time. So the reason the museums happened on a, on a fairly modest budget is because I haven't charged for my time and I've put in hours and years of my life doing it. Um, but it does mean that, um, yeah, it, there are times where it's, it's, I've got stressed, but say the Terraleptil, I mean, the number of hours in that is ridiculous. You could never, I could never afford it to pay someone to do that because it just, just wouldn't have been worth what, you know what I mean? It would, and how much I would have, I don't know. It's a very, it's an interesting point, but ultimately, um, I do have time. So at the minute I'm trying to get ready for real. Basically we've got, do you know, real time pictures with Keith? Keith Barnafar there and Sophie Aldred are coming to film here in May. Um, yes, for a link yes. for, for yeah for a short DVD, and um, they're coming just them just themselves very quickly. They're going to do a quick shoot. But bottom line, I need everything ready for that, and I'm feeling that pressure at the minute. And it's like it's great fun, and I'm putting exhibits in and I'm pulling things out. And with the Zygon coming, it meant I had to pull display cases down, which have all been woodworked, bespoke, fit, and everything. And there are times where you just think, oh my God, I just get stressed. And it does at that point, you start to think, oh, but it doesn't last long. Um, it's a times like that you've got to step back and look at what you've achieved and pat mm. yourself on the back and think, Neil, you've done all this, you know, don't sweat it. You know, just go to bed, do something else for a little bit and come back. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that tonight because I'm trying to put a Star Trek display together at the minute and improve the Star Trek display. Because I get a lot of Trekkies coming. And I just, I, you know, it's a tiny, it's a small display, but I've got an extra costume I want to put it in. I'm just, you know, trying to give the best experience you can. Um, and it's great fun, but at times it's um, when you get tired, <laughs> you look at it and you think, oh, my God. Now that you have that title of great curator, I guess, um, on your CV. What's it been like to see these people come through the doors and what's been their feedback to you in terms of how they've experienced the museum. And I guess you touched on an interesting point with your father-in-law in particular, mm. not necessarily just the people who are, are quite obviously coming for the enthusiasm, but also people who may not necessarily get the same taste, but have come through those doors and experience these things as new. I, I, it's a, one of the, well, generally speaking, I can I can safely say the reaction to the museum is is generally very positive. Um, and what you tend to get is um, you, you get you know you get a certain through traffic through Allendale, a place like Allendale, you get visitors, walkers, people like this. And one of the reasons I said to the parish council was this is a great idea because. You're going to get people to the village who would never normally come to a place like Allendale, you know, and they're going to come to the coffee shops. They're going to come and have a pub lunch. They're going to stay overnight. 
Um, so what you get, so obviously I get sci-fi fans who pop in. Hopefully, generally speaking, they're very, very positive. But then you'll get walking parties past the door. You'll see the Dalek outside, which is what, you know, the council, when we struggled with the Dalek, the council uh, didn't realise. The Dalek attracts so much attention because most people, let's be honest, haven't seen a Dalek in the flesh. So to suddenly see, and I think the juxtaposition of a Dalek in a country village is rather wonderful. And it's the sort of thing that I would love to see on my travels. So even people, because it's such a cultural icon, it, it attracts people in. You know, people are not into science fiction at all. And then I find out the reaction when they do come in, um, hopefully, I think it's to do with the, I think it's such a surprising museum. And hopefully, the way I've done it, um, I, I wanted to create like that, a, a, a sort of a, you, you leave the high street for a moment from whatever the weather's doing outside and you go into this little magical space where you, you know, like the TARDIS, you're transported temporarily into a completely different, you know, experiential dimension. And that's what I'm set out to do <laughs> with all the color, with all the colored lighting and, you know, um, and people, I think, just generally appreciate what I've tried to do, even if they're not into science fiction. And that's been lovely. That people, I guess that's the sort of artistic side of me in a sense, you know. Um, I have seen collections where there are exhibitions where, like, there was one at the Centre for Life in Newcastle, where they had a load of really nice science fiction costumes, but they were just in a big space. You went around the corner, there they all were, lovely, really nice collection. But then you just, you walked up to them, and then you walked two metres to the next one, and then you walked across there. And what I was trying to do is create this little journey with corridors and things, you know, so you, you a bit like the ghost, the old ghost trainer experience, you know, meets the black, you know, the old Doctor Who exhibition. But it's that sort of, for a little while, you're just transported out. And I think people have got that. And then hopefully, I mean, there's no doubt some sci-fi fans have come in and just, and Doctor Who fans, and just absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I think sometimes people have just enjoyed the fact that I've done this as just a guy, you know, I'm not the BBC, I'm not 20th Century Fox, you know, I've just, I'm just, a, I'm just Joe Schmo, just Mr. Mr. You know, the teacher who's just decided to, um, you know, follow my passion through. Well, I'm sure you'll agree with me that there isn't anything just about what Neil has managed to achieve in turning a passion project into reality in the way that he has done so that everyone can appreciate and learn more about modern genre storytelling and the bold imagination that goes hand in hand with that. Well, in a moment, we'll get on to some of the very out there challenges that Neil has had to face since becoming a museum curator, but I'm very pleased to be able to tell you that the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi will be reopening its doors to visitors from the 29th of May. Pre-booking is preferred because COVID restrictions are still in place. So if you would like to leave this reality for just a moment and indulge yourself in all things science fiction and fantasy, let's face it, we need some escapism right now, then please do book in advance by emailing museum at gmail.com or you can visit the website at museumofclassicsci-fi.com for more details. 
you spoke about the the juxtaposition of having a quirky sci-fi museum in the heart of uh, rural Northumberland, and you obviously mentioned a very unexpected uh, curved ball that was sent your way from the local council. And suddenly uh-huh. this, there was this this ensuing battle between a local council yeah. and a Dalek, mm-hmm. which sounds surreal. Um, for yeah. people who aren't aware of that particular episode, what was that all about? The museum is based in a, in a listed, grade two listed building. And we were very careful. We got, contrary to what some people said, we actually had planning permission to make the museum. We weren't so silly as to just think, oh, we'll just do what we want. And we were very careful in that we put floating floor down, so there was no change to anything. So the museum itself is all built on a floating platform, effectively. So you could strip it out, and there's no harm at all to any of the stonework inside. In fact, we'd actually have to restore the cellar. I actually took the fireplace I rebuilt. It had been smashed up. Various, the number of repairs, we, we turned this, what was known in the village as a local eyesore, we took back and everybody, bar one or two, just thought it was we'd done the most amazing job. You know, so we just thought this was great. We stuck a Dalek outside because uh, museums, you, you've got to catch people in. No one's going to pass, you know, just a stone building with, with nothing outside and, and even look. And the Dalek was just perfect. So we put a Dalek out and people loved it. Absolutely loved it. And then suddenly we got three bailiff type guys one day i was teaching got a message with those problems at the door my wife was is a, is a cbt therapist and she was um doing some work with somebody and there was just basically it was very very heavy-handed they, they wanted to remove the dalek bottom line was sorry i've missed an important part out we put the dalek under a tarpaulin at night and it looked like just what it was a giant lump under a horrible tarpaulin just looked awful. So we thought, well, what can we do? Uh, we don't want for the neighbours. That's not very nice to look at. We'll put it in a... We we had a guy up the road who's an, a really expert woodworker. You know, he's not... He wasn't just a bit of tat. And we basically got a bespoke wooden little structure. Temporary, totally not attached, just, just to... That opened completely up or we could shut it, you know, at night. So that basically we just thought some of the locals, well, you know, the, the neighbours probably don't want to look at a dialect 24-7. So we just, you know, we were very, very, uh, we didn't think that was an offensive item, mm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, but somebody in, somebody locally did. And basically, the person in question did not want a science fiction museum in Elmdale. This is what it, that's why the complaint was made. Um, and the only thing they could actually find to, put their muckers on what we were doing was the fact we not the Dalek, although they hated that, but it was the fact that we put a shed. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't even technically a shed. It was just a little wood, you know, structure around it. Um, that was against rules. However, as the battle went on, we started to find other rules which totally contradicted that rule. And actually, although it was very stressful, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to the museum. Um, so thank you, Northumberland County Council, really, because really the amount of people who then travelled to see us. I mean, I was on TV and all sorts after that. We got on, have I got news for you? Um, but it's a shame because the reality was a lot of the, North, the Northumberland County Council, a lot of people there, it must be said, were totally supporting what I did. I had people coming to apologise 
for the few that were causing the problem. It's the kind of story you could you couldn't you couldn't make that up if you tried. When when I saw this story at the time, what struck me is it made me feel that this underlines a bit of a disconnect between people not understanding people's creative tastes and just accepting yes. that. Is that how you felt? Did you? Yeah. Did it? Did it stress you out at all that people just weren't understanding the positivity that you were wanting to put out with this museum? It, it's funny because one of the things I just watched um, Ben Fogel. God bless Ben Fogel. He's just done a documentary called Ben Fogel in Chernobyl, and I thought, did somebody actually decide? You know, that, that is the perfect. Did somebody actually pick Ben Fogel to go to Chernobyl just because his name rhymes with Chernobyl? Anyway, <laughs> but it got me watching um, Ben Fogel in the wild. I don't know if you've seen Ben Fogel's programs where he visits people in remote places. Yeah. And there was this, and it was very, very interesting. This is just purely synchronous that, we've, that you've asked this. There's a guy in Wales who's, you know, with his family living in a plot of land on a Welsh hillside. And Ben Fogel says, you know, he's, he's seen people living in, you know, remote, basically, you know, um, living off the land and, and trying to have a zero detrimental effect to the planet. It's all good stuff. And this guy in Wales was amazing, amazing. He, he, he created his little house with his family, he created his house. They were, they were planting natural crops that hadn't been there for 100 or two years, you know, and he was living. It was a really inspirational project and using rubbish, basically any rubbish he, would, he was reusing. And yet, a small number of people in the village that was, you know, a little way away, were complaining about it. And there was nothing this guy was doing that was bad. He was he was an inspirational figure. I'm not saying I'm an inspirational figure. That's not what I'm leading to. But um, what it got me was that Ben Fogel finished by saying that there's definitely um, society has a problem with people who do things a little bit differently. And who are creative, and who have, um, and I thought, yes, this is this is what I came up against here. There was um, a local, an, an ex county councillor who lived opposite, who I had no idea, never been in the museum, never came in, never spoken to me before. Posted a letter to the local paper, and it was the, the finish line was Mr. Cole needs to take his TARDIS off to the Blackpool and, and leave Allendale effectively, and there was an outcry about this because. Most of the locals could see that I'd restored a local graded to building, you know, that had been in total disrepair with no no cost to the council at all, no cost to the public purse. And then we'd had in a year we had three thousand visitors to the museum, and the county council themselves had described we're discuss, you know the, the North Pennines area is is a deprived rural area. In other words, we need we've got to keep people coming in for these businesses to keep going, you know. And so anything that does that, and all I was doing for free, absolutely for free, was costing the county council nothing at all, nothing. I was just bringing people in. I had people come from, uh, I had a lady from Paris, I had people travelling to the UK who were doing, who were travelling from north to south of the country, who were stopping off and having a weekend in Allendale because they love sci-fi, they'd seen the Netflix show. That's the other thing. <laughs> we were on Netflix. We advertised Allendale for free on Netflix. Brilliant. And it was almost like there was a, um, it was like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is coming into this village and doing this? And it's the same thing this guy experienced in Wales. Um, who is he? 
building a house on the hillside who how what 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 made using that not using traditional you know and it's this sort of um you do i think come across that and i think i am very a little bit out there in terms that i have very strong ideas but i'm not sort of person don't get me wrong i'm not somebody who won't compromise you know i've said all along i i i approached the community and said look i want to do this but i don't want to you know it's not going to be you know um raucous or anything else i said you're going to end up with film buffs comic buffs book readers families visiting the, the village it's going to be great for the village because you're going to get it's a nice crowd you know the sci-fi community is not known for the sci-fi riots you know to me it, it hits at that genre and um a bit of snob you know be, be beliefs in what certain genres are and i experienced growing up that you know science fiction if you said oh i'm draw science fiction oh you're not an artist you're not a proper artist or you draw you draw comics oh that's not art that's just comics and it's like well actually that's it's all that sort of getting into what is culture what is what is valued is sort of proper and and it's all that sort of thing that comes in and that's what i think is at play here um that's yeah. science fiction yeah. you know oh, oh no not science fiction kind of that um whereas once you know science fiction you realize it's a highly intelligent genre yeah but yeah the village the village was just tremendous and and not just that like the the, uh, the genre the fandom you know the sort of sci-fi community was incredible I guess you get over one battle and then all of a sudden there's an episode that we wish was a missing episode now, but uh, here we go. We're we're in a year or so of closures and lockdowns. Museums are closed Mm -hmm. left, right and centre. And uh, just as you're getting your second wind after all that thing with the council lo and behold you have to shut your doors again uh what what were the challenges of facing that and how how have you get kept going yeah it's a good question um basically um throughout the museum's first year that i i could not afford to quit teaching because the income from the museum wasn't sufficient enough to cover our expenses so what we did was between us as a family which is this is what i'm saying it's a bit, you know, I'm very, very lucky that I, I married, you know, the wife I have and the, the father-in-law I've got because they suddenly, between us, we started, we kept the museum open. So we thought was okay. Um, can't open all week, but we'll open several days a week. And uh, between us, we'll run it, which is what we did. Yeah. But what that meant was I was still teaching. So that meant I was still getting an income from teaching. So when I went into lockdown, um, I mean, I started going to school at times, but basically I was still technically, I was getting an income. So I just shut the doors. What it also meant for me was I thought, right, I, I tend to look at, for me, I think, as I said earlier, time, time is the most valuable commodity for, for someone like me, because what I can't, what I can't, you know, pay for, I'll damn well do it myself and enjoy mm-hmm. doing it most of the time. So it was a question of, um, it was a question of, I knew the museum was not as I wanted because after Netflix, we really felt pressure to open because people were contacting us daily. I open when you open, you see. We, I just thought, right, this is a chance to actually have some time on a daily basis where I go in, rip the museum to bits, and do it again. Um, it wasn't quite as literal as that, but when you know, hopefully you'll visit again shortly, Mark. You'll hopefully see the differences. There's a lot of differences now in the museum. And I feel quite proud of it now. 
Um, and I'll be blunt, without the lockdown, I could not have done that because once you're open, it's very difficult um, to do the sort of complexity of work. Um, bear in mind with the museum, I do everything. So I, I, I have to build the stands that the, each stand is bespoke because each prop's different and then they all have to interlock because the space is so tight. So, and then I design the plaques and make the plaques and do all this. So it's a huge amount of work, tremendously satisfying, but it, it was just once everything's in place, it's very difficult to then pull big giant sheets of glass out and you know so lockdown gave me a chance to do that so i was getting some teaching money coming in still um part-time and um with my wife still working that i was you know felt to be honest i was very fortunate in that in that it didn't hit us the way it did some um and then though as the second lockdown came and just just throw a bit of a curveball in at school um in the summer just as we we're coming at you know just a, you know last summer um there was budgetary problems with our school so we had to um lose staff and i was an older expensive member of staff um so i basically thought right okay this could be the time to hand my notice in which is a bit mad because i didn't have any money coming in but thankfully the school wanted to keep me but they said would you do fewer days well actually it was perfect because i, I enjoy teaching art you know i do i mean i've yeah. taught art so i was basically being kept on as a two-day-a-week art teacher, well, that gave me the time now from four days, which is what I was teaching. I suddenly had more time to devote to the museum and still get that little burst of teaching and that energy I get from going in and doing that side of life. But it just meant now suddenly I had this proper window of time, which I'd never had, and it was quite liberating. But then, of course, it meant money-wise, the lockdown, we opened for a week and it went in lockdown again. I was like, oh, my God, now I'm on two days a week teaching. <laughs> and it was just we we just had to just knuckle down. I mean, we we were um, just like most a lot of people, you know. I'm, you know, we just just on very very limited resources, but we've we've scraped through. I mean, thing is, you know, when we weren't in a situation which some people have been, especially around here, you know, if you're running a pub or something like that, we've suddenly got, you know, so. But it, again, it just for me personally, then as he, I decided. Um, this was a good time to sort of maybe explore Patreon and start the Patreon project up because I'd always wanted to do written materials, you know, magazines, booklets to support the museum. But again, when you're teaching most of the time, you just don't have that time. So suddenly I thought, right, okay, now's the time to start writing the magazine, you know, produce a, a regular in-depth look at the museum. And again, there's, there's people who follow the museum who, are, who live abroad who will probably never come here and see the museum, but, it's a chance where I can actually present to them an in-depth look at items in the museum and, and get the museum collection and share in a different way. And that was a really quite an exciting challenge. So I've kind of been buzzing on that. How, how important is it to you to have that wider community to be cheering you on and sharing that journey with you? Does that spark your imagination and creativity to do other things? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think um, had I not received the support of, um, and this is not the local support now, because most locals aren't into science fiction. This is the sort of broader sci-fi community and artistic community. Yes, it is. That is, it, it is like petrol, really. Um, it's kind of like a, almost like a, a gauge of, am I doing okay or not? Now I'm back to sort of settled, and I'm just. Put, to me, what I think I'm doing now is far more interesting than the, the Dalek malarkey with the council. 
you know um mm. like I, I rescue you know i basically got the loan of the only surviving zygon costume used on screen in 1975 that to me is a big deal i drove through the night to get it it's on trust from the guy who restored it from the you know mike tucker and it's like to me that's a really interesting thing and i think i've had <clears throat> you know i did a little video about it not not a masterpiece by any means but just like a little thing and i've had a little bit of feedback from it and it's lovely but it's interesting because you think oh what that to me is a wow moment but yeah. you know the fact that i put on that you know i've said to the council no i'll not take the dialogue you know wow you know fill up your inbox and it's just bizarre this sort of feel and i think what you've got to do is you've you've got to have faith that when things are quiet you've got to settle that inner voice of doubt which is one of the things that i think most artists you know and i'm very very guilty of this you know sort of that doubt oh what, what i'm doing is any good to think that people what you do means something to an audience i mean any art most it's difficult isn't it because what we're looking at is really an audience and when i used to play in bands you know you, you in a way when i was younger you were craving the applause you know you were craving that as a you know when you were, I used to sing and play bass and you 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 want that and then when you do a painting you want people to say nice things about it and i guess this is no different you want you're hoping people are going to like what you do i think now i'm a bit older i'm not as bothered about it and i think with this project because i love it so much i'd be doing it. the thing is i'd be doing this anyway really even if nobody liked it but it's lovely when people come and say they've had a really enjoyed it and it really liked how it's set out that's very satisfying yeah and if it didn't come at all i think i would get pretty twitchy if i'm honest there was a public speaker i um had the great fortune to listen to a few weeks ago and i guess it really sort of summed up for me kind of the journey that we've all been on over the last year or so. And it was a, a gentleman mm. called Bio Kamalafe. And he had this tremendous wisdom of saying, it's only when we become lost in our journey that the magic becomes possible. And we see things as if we've seen them for the very first time. Was yeah. there a point during this whole lockdown experience where you got a bit lost and you looked stood back and were able to look at what you've done with the museum and you saw it with those fresh eyes again right, well that, that is a, a really really pertinent question because what i can actually say is i didn't have any of those sorts of uh, realization moments during lockdown at all in in fact if anything lockdown had the reverse uh, thing with me it kind of gave me permission to actually get on and pursue my artistic goal and vision for what the museum should have always look like it gave me that chance to do it but i'd had those sorts of um moments where i'd stopped and reflected and in a massive way before that probably oh gosh probably about 10 years before um and then again just before i started the museum proper you know in about 2005 but um and I'd, you know i i I know exactly, you know, where you you reflect and you see things clearly and you can see how life's not going or life is how it should be. And, and the museum really, once I was on with that, I knew that was actually heading me in the right direction to, I'd known for a long time that the way life had gone was not as it was, in, as, it, as I ever intended it to. And, and you, you veer off the path. Um, 
but as I say, for me, I was just quite fortunate because I'm quite good at, um, you know, you know, working by myself. I enjoy. I, I have no problem occupying my time and, and doing tasks and um, not just tasks, creative things. Um, I enjoy that. So to me, lockdown really gave me permission to sort of have guilt-free creativity on a daily basis, which I don't mean to sort of sound flippant because I know a lot of people are struggling with it. But I think because I'd lived in the, you know, in rurally most of my life and it wasn't, that wasn't that aspect of it wasn't difficult at all. And if anything, as I say, I always feel, I always feel guilty about things, you know, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. And, uh, the museum still feels like, like a bit, a bit guilty, you know, say, oh, well, I'm enjoying it. Therefore I shouldn't quite, shouldn't be doing, you know, in, I shouldn't be enjoying it as much or I shouldn't be doing it for so long. The pandemic came along and in a way lockdown kind of said, well, you've got to get on with other stuff and you can do that. And it's okay in a way, if that makes any sense. So um, that's how lockdown worked for me. Do you, do you think that's an important value for, for all creatives to continue on with beyond things opening up again I guess we've all got to find a new way of going forward in our respective creative journeys and just having that sense of just joyously appreciating that creativity for yourself is that something that's important for you to to keep going forward and you think other people should as well yeah, I mean, well, the bottom line is, you know, um, I mean, I grew up in a family where, you know, my dad ultimately was alcoholic. Um, and he had no real problem in in prioritizing, you know, that aspect of his time. And then I've known people throughout the life who've had, throughout my life, who've had different, um, you know, things they've done, which arguably were potentially harmful as well. Whereas being creative, um, to me, is is it's like it's reaching, it, it's trying to tap into that potential you have um, inside you, and using it in the most positive way. Um, and, I, and I, it's funny because the guilt thing is a really interesting thing, which I've come to identify only in the last probably the last ten years. That often people don't look at art um, in a, as a sort of work sense and I know there was that thing during the pandemic with you know art is work and it was interesting that because um, I looked at that and thought hard about it because most of my life I haven't been able to do art because I've had to just do other things to pay my way um, and there's a big can of worms all this but I think you should not be feeling guilty for doing creative practices I mean ultimately the way I look at my life is I've got two children. I've got to make sure they're okay. I do still feel guilt that I'm not um, giving them enough of my time or that I'm not giving my wife enough of my time. And that's something I struggle with on a daily basis because there's that inner artist inside me. And it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it's a drawing, whether it's joinery for the museum, or whether it's sculpting or whether it's writing or whatever it is, there's this bit inside of you when you're an artistic person, you, it's desperate to, 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 to get out. Um, and that's a battle. I think once the pandemic finishes, or oh, coming out of it, hopefully, I'm I'm still going to end up. I know I'm still going to sit thinking, oh gosh, how much time can I, should I give towards the museum on a weekly basis or on a daily basis? It, it's it's a battle, and that is a battle. I think I don't think I'll ever quit. But I think yeah, you, 
to answer your question, I think we probably should. Yeah. If you're fulfilling all the different needs in your life and you're looking after people, you're not being totally selfish, then, you know, as I say, when I'm making the museum, I'm not, you know, drinking three bottles of whiskey uh, or, you know, getting knocked down the head on something I shouldn't be. You know what I mean? I'm not harming anybody in that sense. The only mm. harm is that I guess I'm maybe not giving people in my life the attention that perhaps they deserve. That's the only thing that I'm, I struggle with personally, if that makes any sense. Do, do you think, going back to what we mentioned earlier about that wider community of support behind you, do you think that that perhaps might pave the way for you to just feel that sense of ease a bit and maybe be kinder to yourself in, in that respect of not feeling that guilt? Yeah, I mean, I think when you get a positive response back from people who come to the museum or see a piece of artwork I've done or something, and then they value it, then that does, without doubt, you, you, you see that. Um, it, it's, feeling per it's feeling like your art has a purpose, isn't it? Um, and it's that sort of doing an art piece of art in a vacuum. I mean, it is possible to sit and draw, which I have done for years, uh, with no out outlet for it, you know? But the, you know, the, it, it, it's when you see people appreciating what you do, then it does ease that feeling of guilt because you are, it's well, it's that purpose. You feel like you're actually performing a service, not a service. That's not like the right word, but you know, you you are somehow contributing to yeah. the lives of others, and that's um, certainly yeah, that 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 does negate, you know. That feeling of self, you know, I'm just doing something for pure selfishness, as it were. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. yes, that, that's an, that's an interesting, yeah. I guess what what are your hopes now for the museum? Is there a a new sense of purpose uh, behind what you're doing now? What what have you got in mind once those doors are able to open again and uh, just share that sense of joy and and celebrate? Uh, all things sci-fi again yeah i mean i think i'm tremendously excited because i put in now what a good over a year of fresh work into the museum and when i say there's a lot of new pieces in i mean there's a huge amount of work gone into you know upgrading the museum i think every display has been changed every you know it's a massive amount of work i'm so excited to sit hopefully people it's kind of like it's funny i kind of like i'm looking forward to people who came you know a year or two ago I, i'd love people who want to revisit will come back and, and and see you know and get a sense of the development of what's happened that'd be nice to get feedback on that but then i'm also looking forward to people who always you know who've been to, oh i mean to come to the museum and i will now after lockdown be coming i'm really looking forward to seeing because they're kind of going to kind of get like a, a fresh hit they're going to see it eyes are fresh so I'm, I'm looking forward to both those sort of reactions, but also I think because of the pandemic, the one thing that, that with Patreon, Patreon's helped me structure my sort of, uh, as an artistic person, you know, it, it's helped structure me into producing some content on a regular basis. And actually, I don't know about you, but I, I find it, I'm better when I've got a structure. I work well to, you've got two months to write and research a magazine and do some pictures on this. That's great. I love, love that. What I've got now is I'm reopening, not only with a sort of a, an improved museum, but also I've been creating these magazines 
and hopefully it would be nice to get feedback on those and hopefully people will enjoy those. And I've also got some um, book artwork I'm working on now, which I'll be able to do in the museum. So I'm hoping for me, it's it's like a bit of a journey. And what I, I guess for me, what I'm trying to do now is possibly have a little break for actually changing the museum itself because I've done nothing, I've done so much on that. It's like time to just take stock for a bit. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, if you're changing all the time, you almost, you're almost, you start to lose the sense of what's good and bad in a piece. You, you just, you know, it needs to settle. And that'd be nice. And opening marks the sort of the, the stopping and the settling, you know, and then get, get an audience back in, see what they think. And in that time, work on magazine publications and new artwork for the magazine for the for the for the museum and um just change direction a bit more to sort of visual art again for a little while which will be exciting as well so it's sort of that's that's where i'm at and obviously yeah just the excitement of uh, getting out and about and seeing people visiting will be lovely absolutely gosh i mean when you you take stock of Global mm. pandemics, battles with local councils, uh, all the way back to where you had that that seed of inspiration at a at a museum in Blackpool. Yeah. Um, could could you have anticipated that as a life story? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I think uh, I think probably what I've realised is that I have, and I'm very grateful for the fact that I've got a drive, this inner drive. And I think it's, I am quite, I've got a lot of skills, you know, I've developed over the years, like art and things like this. But I think, um, I don't think, you know, it's because like, I teach obviously a lot of children as well. I think often when people go, wow, that child can play violin and they're nine and it's amazing. For me, it's not about the fact the child can play the violin. It's, it's more the fact that no, what that child has is have the tenacity and the staying power to go through all the bits which are absolutely tedious and boring to get to the point where they can play the violin. And I think that's been my bit. I think I've got that psychological factor. So I did three years of stonework in the cellar before I could even think about putting a floor in to then think about putting where a display might go. And I had three years of freezing cold, angle grinding, and manually chiseling out, you know, old mortar and various things. And, I, and I, I, it's funny because that time I got loads of photographs of me looking absolutely sick of <laughs> the chip. But in that time, what it was was that it was always in my head was the end goal, you know. And I just kept saying to myself, no, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And it is interesting because if you ask me, would I do that again? If I had to start right back at the beginning of that process, you know, three years working full time with, you know, two autistic children, three years, it's like, wow, Neil, how did you, you know, it's part of me that does think, how did you manage that actually? But it's that sort of inner, it's what makes a child sit and play a violin, which sounds terrible for probably several years before it starts to sound anything like decent. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've listened to loads of children in school playing the can-can on the violin horrendously. And I don't know if you ever heard the can-can being played on the violin badly. It's, appall <laughs> it's appalling. And the problem is when children start playing violin, it sounds appalling for a long time. And it's like, and I think that's, uh, 
So when I go back to now thinking about 1975, I can still see it going into that museum, that Blackpool exhibition. I can see me, I can see it, and I can feel the feeling I had. Um, it's yeah, it's wow, really. You know, yeah. it's quite insane, really. <laughs> I never thought I'd own a Doctor Who monster, for God's sake. Do you know what I mean? A Doctor Who yeah. monster, for real. It's just amazing. Well, I'd really like to thank Neil Cole for taking time out of his very busy schedule to chat to me for this episode, particularly now that he's getting ready for a grand reopening of the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi. Three years of stonework in a cellar? I don't think many of us could see that through to the bitter end. I know I certainly couldn't. But then again, Neil has probably shown us all in this episode that you can materialise anything into a creative vision with enough passion and drive in that fuel tank in the first place. Now, if you'd like to support the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi so that it can be sustained and enjoyed by people well into the 40th century, then by all means you can become a Patreon backer and receive a wealth of further content created by Neil, as he's mentioned in this podcast. So just head over to patreon.com forward slash the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi. And with that, thank you very much for listening to the Creative Adventurer's Survival Guide. And in the meantime, happy creating. Happy creating.